Okay, everyone, welcome back to Bush Talk Podcast. As always, Ajmal, how are you? I'm good. How are you? It's, uh, it's this is unheard of for us. We're getting quite regular. It's just unbelievable, really. What did you think of our introduction music? Um, well, that music, uh, which we'll explain why we played that in a second, but it's quite evocative for me and our guest who has chosen that, and we'll ask him about it in a minute. But it reminds me of the Dukes of Hazard. I'm going to say. <laughs> Because it's in cinema, it's always used in a country setting where there's a car chase happening. And it always reminds me of that. And obviously, it's, you know, it's it's really old. What is it? 1950 odd. So it always reminds me of that. But to introduce our guest, Giles English, founder of, well, co-founder of Brewant Watches. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome. Well, thank you both for having me here. I really appreciate it. And for listening to my music. <laughs> definitely a it. unique experience. And I don't think we've had that much banjo music in our introduction in the past that I can remember. <laughs> oh, look, I love I, it. It was a challenge to find the tune to introduce it. And I'm glad you've introduced us to something different because Ajmal and I come from a generation that really only plays a certain narrow bandwidth of music, no matter how hard we try to go outside of it <laughs> so yeah look, it, tell us why are we listening to foggy mountain breakdown oh uh, well my father who's a massive inspiration to myself and my brother who who i founded bremer with um was big into his bluegrass music and and he used to play in a band and i used to sort of try and play guitar along as he played that on the banjo and and he made all his own banjos so it was just, it was a really evocative tune from us as as kids, and um, yeah, always sort of kept kept that love for it. Well, if we're going to listen to banjo music, firstly, I'm grateful it wasn't from Deliverance because I'm scarred from the experience. Yeah, I deliberately up. wasn't gonna, I deliberately wasn't going to mention Deliverance, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> the most listeners... film, but the most scarring. I agree. <laughs> but for listeners out there who can't see the video that we're looking at right now. Charles has actually got a couple of guitars hanging up in the back of his room and an upright piano. Is that what I'm seeing there? Yeah, there's something, guitars, watches, cars, there's something about them. And I think, um, yeah, both myself and my brother, we used to collect guitars as well. I just think they're most beautiful instruments and, um, yeah, as with watches and and Porsches, as we're going to sort of cover on that side. I think it's, I, I think if you collect one thing, you generally collect more than one thing, don't you? Look, there's definitely an affinity between Porsche owners and watch collectors, as we're quickly discovering in our journey on this podcast. Wouldn't you agree, Ajmal? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the the thing about watches, I mean, a lot of people connect them, collect them as much as they collect the Porsches. And for me, it's obviously there's a function and there's a there's a satisfaction that you get out of owning and and using these things. And I always worry that so many people that I see, uh, you know, online, I speak to, they just have them for possession, to own those things, you know, to not use them. And to, I feel like everything's for the experience and kind of get the impression, Giles, you're coming from the same point of view. Uh, I'm so in your camp. And it's, yeah, I came from the world of aviation. That's my background, really, and my dad. And we used to call it hangar queens. These are beautiful planes kept in hangars, but never used. And I think... Look, the beauty of owning something is using it. And we always, I always say to people who buy our watches, don't just put them in a safe and don't enjoy it. Wear them. And that's, that is how you connect. And, you know, you've got a classic car. The better it drives is if you drive it regularly rather than not using it. And don't be too precious. You can get it re-sprayed. You can get it rebuilt in 10, 20 years' time. Just enjoy it and then then you'll make the most of it yeah so i'm i'm definitely in your camp i'm i'm yeah. continually so um, continually frustrated by approaching and meeting people who've got these garages full of cars and inevitably safes full of watches as well and you know it's these culprits that are just driving 
further and further away the accessibility to those of us that don't have the means to enjoy these things that we'd like and we appreciate for reasons other than their current monetary value. You know, it just, when I see it, and I, like I, I came across a car last week, it was a 2.7 RS. Now, I didn't think there was one here in Perth. I trip over the car on the street and I have a talk to the owner. I hung around, you know, I, I ambushed him. He drives the thing three times a year. I felt like calling the cops. You know, this is like one of the great motor cars of all time that's ever been built, regardless of what brand you enjoy or acknowledge. And I'm, I'm thinking to myself, this guy shouldn't be allowed to own this. He should give yeah. it to me. And that could be a daily driver, that car. That's Easily, the yes. The, the, it's, it's because so many of these things have become an asset class rather than buy, use and enjoy. And, and it's great. It should be both. It should be an asset class. Yes, it holds its value, but you should enjoy it and make the most of it. And and I think it's also come from this OCD level of it has to be perfect and perfectly restored and look like a brand new car all its life. Is just when when you have a car like that, it's just kind of restoration. You don't want to use it because it is too perfect. And uh, yeah, when you look at my cars, they're definitely not perfect. <laughs> But they are used. Let's talk about your cars, Joel. What have you got in the garage? So I, I'm not, I, you know, by any means a big collector at all. Um, I bought my 911. Um, it's a 1973 um, 2.4T. So I got my first job. I, I, I studied engineering and um, I was sponsored by the RAF. And I was either going to the RAF or or go into um, engineering. And, and my father um, died in a plane crash my last year of uni. So the RAF got cut from me. I couldn't, I had to leave uni to go and look after my father, my mother. And, and um, I got a job in the city. Um, and my first, I got paid three months in advance and I drove past the garage. I was 20, 21 at the time. And there was this beautiful yellow 911T. And there's a black um, S in front of it, both 73. And mine was six and a half grand. And the S was nine and a half grand. And I didn't have enough money for the S. And I love the color of the yellow. So I bought that when I was 20, just used as a daily car, really, ever since. And it's been rebuilt many times. And so many times I've had to sell it to um, raise some cash, but could never bring myself to flog it. And uh, so that's that's been my, you know, I use it as my daily driver now. Um, I then um, uh, fell in love. I'd always wanted a 928. And um, and I bought myself a, a 928, which um, uh, there's b between the S4, S2 and S4, they... For six months, they made a, um, a, a a sort of hybrid version manual, which I bought, drove that for several years, and I'm just restoring that at the moment. And that is honestly the comfiest touring car you could ever, ever drive. So I'm massively in love with that. Um, I had a 356, which I loved, but I had some school fees, so I had to flog that. <laughs> Roadster. Um, which I imported from the States, I had that for a number of years. I really love that. The only problem with me with the 356, it couldn't be used as a daily car, whereas 928 and 911, you really could. And so it was becoming a bit of a lovely day, get it out type car. And that's not really the way I roll. And I've got then a series of old Land Rovers, but um, I won't go into that. It's not quite so relevant now. Um, but yeah, I, I've I've always loved those. Well, I was just going to say, uh, I do want to hear about Land Rover Visitor, innit? But I just wanted to ask, why? Uh, what what drew you to the brand? Because obviously you've been, um, you've kind of been into the whole fine engineering and, and, you know, something that's so finely engineered to do what it's meant to do has a beauty that, that transcends just engineering. And But what drew you to that brand? Well, it my father was this, PhD aeronautical engineer who was this brilliant man at building things and um, he restored an old E-type when we were kids he built a plane we still fly um, 
And I love the E-Type, but he um, was massively into his Porsches as well. And for him, it was a car that worked, designed perfectly. And and you you got into an E-Type, not similar age difference, a late version E-Type, and overheats and can't go around corners. And you know, everything about it is unreliable. And... Um, compare that to the Porsche. And so my father had a sort of 80s whale tail Porsche. Um, and so it's just, it became this sort of family thing. Um, when my father died, my brother inherited the Porsche and his worst decision ever was selling that car. And he still regrets <laughs> it. And it was just, he needed some cash. And it was just that, I, I, I he, he, he winces whenever I remind him of, of exactly that. Um, so yeah, it really came from this, as an engineer, it just works. And I was with Ian Callum, who you know with your father, ex-design director of um, Jaguar, design um, Aston Martin, great old friend of mine. And he's just bought a GT3. I mean, just, he just says, you know, it's, it works, it's the car. And yeah, what he was doing with the F-Type, had he been allowed to develop it further, he would have you know changed a lot around. It's It's... It's just just perfect in so many ways, isn't it? So for me, I mean that that because I would have been about ten, I think, quite young. I think you and I are roughly about the same age. We won't tell anybody. Um, and when uh, <laughs> my dad worked at Jaguar Cars, and I remember he he just worked in the factory in Birmingham, and I used to meet him on a Saturday if he worked Saturday after I played for the school football team, and I remember walking up and on display was an E Type Series One. And I just thought it was the most amazing thing I'd ever seen. And it was there because they'd just launched the XJ220. So the two right. of them were next to each other. And, I, and someone said to me, oh, did you see the XJ220? And I, and I remember going home and thinking, no, I, I didn't I didn't notice it was there. But it was right next to it. But I just saw the E-Type Series 1 and I thought, that's the most amazing car I've ever seen. And probably about 24, 25 years ago, I bought myself an MGV Roadster. And it was because that was marketed as the poor man's E-Type. Yeah, it was. And I was never going to be able to afford an E-Type. So I got one of those, um, and I got myself a Haynes manual, you know, in the 90s. There's no real internet that you could look. Got myself a Haynes manual, and I thought, I can I can fix that. You know, I'll have my dad helping me. And he just looked at me and went, there's just no way you're going to fix that. And, and I remember I got it going, and I, I converted it from left-hand drive to right-hand drive. I bought wow. a donor car. I had no real idea what I was doing. But, you know, when you go, I'm just going to label stuff up. I'm sure that looks like it goes there. And I, I had that car for, yeah, I sold it two years ago, um, mostly because I ran out of storage space and it had been in storage for two or three years. And I felt like I'd neglected an old friend every time I went to this storage facility to pick up my 912 to take out for a drive. This thing was in the corner. And then I ended up selling it. I could have cried on the day that I sold it, but it was the right decision. But I, I do think there's that thing of, it gets passed down, doesn't it? It gets passed down, the love of certain things. You can't help it. And I think I, I got that from my dad where he was very mechanically minded. Uh, he was just get on with whatever, you know, whatever we was presented with, I can just tackle that. And it kind of, it kind of you know, it, it, it kind of flows through you. I don't know how it happens. It's not, genetic or anything um but i love the fact that you've followed that through to such an nth degree um but tell us how how does one go i'm going to start a watch company and i'm going to engineer the watches myself and design them and create a brand and create this company and this amazing company that you and your brother have created. how does that start as a as a idea in your head well it's quite after my dad's death and yeah my brother's in the plane crash your life is so tipped upside down it's just not it's never going to be the same again and you hit such a tipping point where you realize every day is so damn precious and really any boundaries or barriers just come in material you just sort of i'm just gonna do it and we were so aware of this amazing history of british watchmaking growing up and my father used to restore clocks and watches and he used to be in his workshop fixing these things talking about this wonderful history 
And you know, you go back all those years, well sets its time by Greenwich. Meantime, Rolex was found in Clark and Well, probably 60% of modern mechanical watch, all invented by the British. So it's you know, amazing history. And there were no British watch companies. And and um Nick and I just we grew up around watch and clocks. We felt we knew what they're about, we loved them. And we said, look, sod it, let's go and follow a passion. And and everyone said, you're completely mad. What do you know about watches? And to be fair, we knew very little um, in hindsight. But it's this blind ambition. And we went over to Switzerland for probably seven, eight years, um, learned the trades, started to build the watches. And then the whole idea was to bring that back to the UK. And, and if you look now, when you come to... The wing and in Henley on Thames, you know, we're doing full machining of components, cases, watch movement components, full movement assembly and watch assembly under one roof. And it's, you know, for for business our size, it's e- very rare even to see that in Switzerland. And and that's just the that's the excitement stuff is creating something out of nothing. And it's like you know, watches, planes, cars are very similar. It's about design. It's about you, you, you're, you know, an engine in a plane or a watch, it's the same you know, engine movement, it's the same gig, it's all cogs and gears. Probably half our engineers um, are from the motorsport industry, um, Formula One or motorsport or aerospace. Um, the difference is we're machining to probably three microns. A human hair is 60 to 70 microns. So, that's the massive challenge. And there's nothing easy about building a watch. And the whole watch industry, there's nothing easy about that. Like, because you're an engine, really high-tech engineering company. You are a, um, uh, a, a design business. You're a marketing business. You're a retailer. And we launched uh, a new store in M- Melbourne last night, um, not that far from Perth in, in global terms. Um, so, uh, so, so you're a retailer as well. And you're... So it's always a challenging, but it's the love of building stuff. And but I think Nick and I, our interests are just as much cars, just as much planes as as they are, and you know, musical instruments as, as they are watches. It's building anything to us is just lovely stuff. Um and and it's it's a fun, it really fun industry, but stressful, very stressful running a watch company because it's damn difficult. Um uh, you really, you know. You, you, it's twenty four seven. That's what it is. That's I think that's I, just I, business in general, isn't it? You know, like the if you own a business, there's nowhere to hide. The buck stops with yeah. you, right? There's you, you can't get around to that. I'm quite curious with the creation of the business there in the UK, and you know the appeal was the part of the appeal was the fact that there's so much history, but it sort of left the country for you to bring back, so to speak. Did you have to like recreate this sector? Like, you know, did you have to train people in these? Like, sure, there's common skills, for, like you said, from aeronautics and, you know, um, automotive, those types of things. But when you're talking about the tolerances, you are these are yeah. these are pretty hot. These are pretty specialist skill sets. Oh yeah, um, that is completely lost, and all the knowledge base about how to machine to those tolerances on movement parts just it's just not here how do you assemble how do you set jewels within a movement efficiently and assemble watches so there was just none of that there's there's been a a, a history of you know individual watchmakers building five ten watches a year type thing or or obviously in restoration and servicing and and so we had set up a full apprenticeship training scheme in place um, where we train everyone up from scratch. And and um, yeah, whereas as I've been in Switzerland, if I want to watch make, I put an ad in the paper and I would get 30 applicants two days later or something, and you go and employ the best two. I want to watch make, I have to train them up for two years, um, might lose them along the way um, and then build it up from there. And and so, yeah, that is definitely would have been a lot easier had we been this British brand, but make it in Switzerland. Um, but for Nick and myself, that wouldn't have been nearly as much fun. And and yeah, they, you, I recommend anyone listening to this, call us up, come and visit Henley and see that whole process. It, it really is lovely to see. I've not seen um I've not seen had the tour, but I've be, I've been uh, I was there for a cars and coffee event, and then 
you know, the Savills and Porsche event that was there, uh, which was beautiful. I mean, perfect evening. And I, I didn't realize that you guys actually did the stores as well, because I've seen the store. I've been in the store um, near, near Liverpool Street yeah. in London. Uh, I had a look in there and um, it's quite on a par with a Rolex store or a, um, you know, or an Omega or whatever, you know, completely top, top. So it's top end stuff that you see in there. But at um, at one of the events, I saw obviously one of your engineers working on a what, And, you know, when you're almost breathing down his neck because you want to see what he's looking at. <laughs> And I know he's on a screen, but you're like, how is he doing that? And he had his, you know, lab coat on because it, it's a science. It feels like it's a science more than just engineering. Um, but you're right. I'd recommend anybody to go and have a look. It's so fascinating. And and the fact that there was a Williams Kiki Rosberg's car from the 80s was <laughs> was it, it was in the showroom. One of the Mansell cars there sitting there. Yeah, which is quite, quite cool. Um, but it's, it's the same when you go into a, you know, Tut Hill Port or something and you go and see an engine being assembled. You go, bloody hell, all those springs and, and washers and where do they all go? It's For me, that's as, that's as alien but as, as interesting um, in that whole respect. I think that the, the key with watches is you've got this... It's all about friction in watches because you've got this tiny spring... Um, which is powering all those gears um, and and then powering the hands or the chronograph and all of that. And so you've got to get rid of as much friction. So your machining has to be utterly perfect. Whereas in a car, yes, friction, you don't lose energy going through it, but it's far less of an issue getting from the engine to the wheels. Um, and, and, and that, you know, just jewel setting, you know, you some bright spark, you know, 300 years ago, realized that actually if you had metal and metal at the high wear, high friction, but if you put a little diamond in there, it was almost frictionless um, and didn't wear. And now we use synthetic rubies for that whole thing. But um, yeah, all of those elements, but you know, a, a movement and a uh, an engine, it's, it's all cogs and gears. I mean, I'm incredibly sympathetic to that particular job of, used to work at video instruments and do a lot of gauge restoration for old cars and clocks and those types of things in motor vehicles. And I'd I'd look at these things and they're still human size parts as a general rule, you know, you you could use tweezers and a magnifying glass. Whereas, you know, with what goes on in watches these days and the accuracy involved on assembly, like some of the more complex chronographs, I'm sure your assembler have got like hundreds of pieces to make this whole thing work to ultimately become a, in this day and age, a piece of men's jewellery because the necessity for watches is purely for their want rather than the need. Yeah, but it's a bit like a classic car. What, what I say is with a watch, there's you know, 86,400 seconds in a day and these watches will tick within three or four seconds accuracy, which is a sort of mechanical marvel. It's the most accurate mechanical device on the planet is a mechanical watch. Um, but, you know, that watch on my wrist will work in 200 years' time. Yes, you have to service it, but if you, you know, if it breaks, you can fix it. And it's the same with a classic car or you know, a nicely built car is it will go on forever. And... I think we live in a completely disposable economy, which I hate. You know, that iPhone will be chucked away in a yep. year's time. And and, uh, I, and that's what really, for me, um, is is my love for these, these things. Before digital and um, chips came into it, the, uh, these things, they, they don't become obsolete. They keep on going forever. I agree. I agree completely because um, someone said to me, I was in a, a work meeting and they were wearing an Apple watch and I was wearing my Omega Seamaster. And they said, oh, watches like that, they'll be largely redundant very soon. And it kind of irritated me because I said, I've had this watch for 25 years and it still does exactly what it was made to do perfectly. That watch is going to be in landfill very soon. Um, totally. And I, I hate that. Forced obsolescence is 
winds me up. My my brother's always saying to me, just get used to it. And I'm like, why should we get used to it? I shouldn't. No. I drive my car, which still does exactly what it was meant to do, which my 1998 911, admittedly bits have fallen off it in recent history, uh, but it still does exactly what it's supposed to do. And it's like we said before, you know where they're supposed to be used. And I, you know, when I'm driving it, I rev it until it hits the rev limiter and it's done 160. 2000 miles and someone said to me why do you keep doing that to it and i'm like but that's his purpose for being that's what it's for and Brilliant. that really gets to me when people just say well but that's you know largely redundant or it's obsolete um but one of the things i wanted to and i, I want to talk a bit more about your 911 because i have seen it in the flesh um and one of the things actually i'm gonna ask you about it now before i forget um it has electric windows what yeah it's sort of, I think I, someone on, on here will tell me exactly when electrics came in, um, but and electric sunroof as well, um, which they've gone wrong, obviously, a few times over the years, but but it not, you know, it's been pretty good um, as a 1973 car, but um, uh, it's been ultimately, yeah, so yeah, hand up. <laughs> I'm just about to say. 356Cs, the last of the 356, they had electric sunroofs as well. Did they really? Yeah, so 1965 cars, yeah, late 64, early 65 cars, they did have electric sunroofs. So if you had a sunroof in your 356 back then, you know, it, so, you know, they, they were the early 12-volt cars. So it might have something to do with that. I don't know, you know, but the power windows, I'm baffled that you a 73 has power windows. Yeah. Wow. Power power up um sunroof. And it's sort of um yeah, it did and, and it works. I mean I didn't have the um I've been in 73s with air conditioning that still works as well, but I haven't got air conditioning in mind, which uh um which you can fit, you can retrofit and get that put in. Um and really it's a sort of I'm, I've gone through a couple of engine rebuilds over the years. Um definitely bits of rust. You know, in the air vents that traditionally rot and down the door sills, you know, get those sort of replaced. Um, but it's a hilarious story. So I took Nick and I had to go and see some retailers in the States. And um, uh, we said, look, actually, why don't we make a road trip of it? We shipped dad's old E type and my 911, and we take it across America and we see our retailers. Basically, we call up, tell our wives it's work, but it's a bit of a holiday. Um, and we set off and we thought we couldn't do it all in one go. So we did it over a year. And if you import a car into the US, if it's under a year, you don't pay import duties. So we shipped shipped it in to New York. And then we did all, all of, um, you know, from New York all the way down to Blue Ridge Mountains, Charleston, um, uh, Alabama, um, uh, went to Graceland and then ended up in Texas. Um, and that took about two and a half weeks. And it was the most amazing trip. Shipped the cars to New York to be looked after. Went back um, eight months later. And then we did, picked up and did Arizona. And we did Death Valley and um, Yosemite and Joshua Tree and LA and all that stuff. And I tell you what, is the most amazing experience. But we always laugh that... Nick's E-Type is now made in America because it broke down so regularly and we had to replace so many parts. <laughs> we were visiting Graceland and, and some brake servo went and we put a call out on Twitter, anyone's got a brake servo, and some local took it off his own E-Type and came and lent it to us or gave it to us when we bought him a new one. Uh, so is that, and that's the sort of camaraderie of, of road trips and how people relate to it. And and the I have to say the 911, not a single thing went wrong in all that time and through the heat. And um and, and that's where the E type you just realize just the it's it's the temperatures that it hates so much, even though we put Evans coolant in and all that. But and and uh, that's the beauty of these things. You can go and use and create these unforgettable memories. And and I know Australians love a road trip. Um, Americans love a road trip. The Brits, we, we don't quite get road trips in the same way. It's a sort of you know quick hour out of London or something, but it's not really a proper road trip. And uh, 
America, when you get out of the towns, is just such an amazing place. It really is. Interestingly, just before this podcast, my wife and I were sitting at the kitchen table because we're heading to the States in September and planning our road trip from New York to LA. Oh, and no way. Yeah, we were That's... originally going to go across the top and then drop down into Colorado, right? But we've since changed our mind and we're going to go south down to the Smoky Mountains through Nashville, Memphis, across Albuquerque, yeah. Oklahoma City, get on Route 66, then divert up to Grand Canyon, Las Vegas, then to LA. And then we're heading up from LA up to uh, Rensport Reunion up in um, up at Laguna Seca there and then fly out of San Francisco. Oh, fantastic. So you're going to do the Big Sur route. Um, Big Sur's definitely. closed at the moment because of landslides. Oh, uh, is it not open yet? Not yet, um, no. Hopefully it will be by the time we get there. Joshua Tree is amazing. Death Valley, Yosemite, unbelievable. Um, you you can be in desert to snow in a day of driving. And that's the amazing thing about Rachel. And you you meet, you just realize America is like 50 countries in one and everyone's so different. Um, uh, but, and you're on those highways, you don't see another car. It's It really is an amazing time. And I, yeah, I highly recommend a road trip. Have you spent any time on Australia, Charles? Uh, no, my sister's married to a guy from Brisbane, and I've been into um, uh, the, the cities, but I've never actually done a tour, a road trip tour. And I, I, I really want to do that, actually. But I mean, I'm, I'm, where would you recommend? Depends how much time you've got. Like anywhere, you know, like heading from heading from south to north is always a great experience, obviously, because you're getting warmer as your trip goes on, because Australia is that big. It covers most of that hemisphere, you know, the, the, um, but, you know, heading West over to where I am, like Perth is the most isolated city in the world. You know, we're that far away from anything else. Like when you said before to Melbourne, I'm not that far away. I think I'm actually closer to you than I am right now to Melbourne and the, (laughs) but in all seriousness, the, there's something almost therapeutic about driving across a desert for three days. Yeah. which is what you've got to do to get to Perth. So the uh, reward seems so much more worthwhile, you know. So it just depends what you're looking for out of a road trip experience as well. I, I might try. It's a bit of a running joke between me and Mark where uh, I say things to him like, oh, I didn't go to Festival of Speed because, it's you know, it's 90 minutes away. And uh, <laughs> for Mark, that's, that's a drive down to the shops, isn't it? <laughs> Ironic- <laughs> Ironically... The weekend just gone when the festival speed was on. I went to my in-law's farm, which is 680 kilometers each way, to pick up my daughter who stayed up there for the school holidays. We drove up on the Saturday, came out on the Sunday. So <laughs> so the idea of road tripping is really just a weekend thing when you live over here. Well, I was just yeah. I was just thinking about Charles. As soon as you said when we, you know, you took your 911 and you took your brother's e-type and you both went on this road trip. And I think hang on, you've taken an air-cooled car in across the desert, you know, Death Valley, Texas, and you've taken sort of kind of one of the most unreliable cars <laughs> in uh, an E-Type, and you've managed to get them both all the way across. I mean, what kind of stuff must have gone wrong with that E-Type? Is it a Series 1? No, it's a Series 2, but we what we did, actually, we went to Jaguar and we put a new radiator on the front and we used Evans coolant, which is, I don't know anyone who knows, but it's basically a, um, it's a sort of gel-like coolant, so it can heat up far beyond 100 degrees before it sort of um, uh, gets too hot. But it's, um, uh, but heating was a big issue. But it's things like on the E-Type, it, it breaks, it's that the heat, it sort of gets everywhere in an E-Type. And it wasn't a particularly, yeah, this is, E-Type was restored 25 years ago. So this, there, it wasn't a newly restored with everything done on it. But almost, you know, stuff breaking down is part of the fun of a road trip and driving an old car, isn't it? I mean, it's, it stresses out a lot of people, but to me, it's part of the fun of it and getting under and trying to fix it and do all of that. And I think if you don't enjoy any of that stuff, old cars aren't really, you know, they, they scare you rather than you you, you enjoy it. Um, uh, but yeah, heat is the big problem with E-Type. But you're sort of, 
did, and with the Porsche, it's just this. You know, it 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 loves loves heat, doesn't it? <laughs> it doesn't really make any difference. <laughs> um, that that's the beauty. I'm I'm absolutely fascinated that E types on this trip. Well, we're talking about E type Jags. They overheat in the UK, and you thought taking it to the desert was going to be a good idea. Well, there's one time we're in Arizona, and it was so hot. And we, the, the, it was just redlining on the heat. And we thought, shit, we've got to go and put it away. And we went and parked it in an underground car park and went for lunch. We said, look, we'll wait till it gets a bit cooler and go. We'll we'll um, leave in the evening and, and make some mileage there. And the whole idea is you get up early in those things and you drive late. So we went for lunch and went away for two hours, came back and... Um, turned it on the ignition on but not the engine and it went bang up to red so it stayed in the red for two hours after leaving it and that's what you're dealing with um so yeah your hot times you learn to get up at four in the morning and 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 actually once you're going it's finally tight it's traffic is that's the problem with a car like that as soon as you slow down um, you don't think that Evans coolant being a gel was slow to heat up, but also very slow to cool down when needed? Well, I never checked into that, but it's probably <laughs> right. Um, yeah. <laughs> probably Classic. right. Classic. But, but stuff, the imagery you get, though, you know, and we went, you know, in the San Francisco hills to Death Valley to Joshua Tree, these, these, you know, the pictures of these cars are just, it's, everywhere you want to stop and just take a photo because it's just so damn beautiful and yeah. and um uh yeah and it's great some memories but the the fun thing with the whole story so we came back and we did a load of events and we saw some retailers and clients and it was, it was great fun and and nick got back home and and throughout the whole time he's telling his wife how hard work he was working got back <laughs> home and he had having a dinner party and his friend said so tell me about you know where have you been and nick said well last week i was in holiday in the u.s I mean work. (laughs) (laughs) Classic, classic. That that whole road trip across the US. I have this retirement fantasy, you know, in the in the future of actually shipping my three five six back to the states because the US delivered car, driving driving west to east, going up and down the east coast, and then flying to Europe and doing all the events in Europe across the European summer as well. You know. So in yeah. in the break in between, come back to Australia for our summer, then go back again. You know, so across like a two year period, there's always this uh, bucket list trip I'd like yeah. to do at some point. You know, and which three five six do you have? I've got a B. I've got a T five. So it's the the most common one, but it's uh, yeah. it's a basic. Look, the body was restored in eighty five, eighty six, that sort of era. Which and and you know it needs some love. There's no doubt about it. It still looks. It presents nicely, but I know what's underneath. But um, mechanically, in my ownership, just about everything mechanical has been touched now. So, you know, from all the suspension components, all the brakes, the engine, gearbox, everything's been, you know, sorted out, so to speak. And I'm just going through some teething issues recently with ignition and carburetors, but I'm just about on top of that now as well. So the whole thing's actually running, ironically, like a clock. I love that. <laughs> the three five sixes is the bodywork, isn't it? It's complicated bodywork for any any shot to uh, do work to, and and that's that's the worry in buying a three five six. It's you really want to make sure, and there's so much filler below it. That if you go and buy a car that looks good, and uh, it looks yeah, good for it, a reason. Yeah, it does. Yeah. But yeah. take that away; they're the most stunning cars. You know, it's, as I as I as I've uh, as I tell people often, guys love nine elevens, but chicks and guys love three five sixes. You're right. You're right. <laughs> it is it is stunning. I do think though on on my three five six I had, I always wanted to hot rod it because I always felt it needed a bigger engine and um, I had a roadster, but it it just you wanted you just thought actually road holding is so good, you don't want you want proper disc brakes and you yeah. want a bigger engine and then you'd have the perfect car. Yeah, they they made that. It was called a 911. Yeah, yeah, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> well, once they went to long wheelbase, 
it worked, right? But you know, but prior to that, it was problematic. But look, in reality, like mine has been, my motor's been mildly hot rodded, and I've got, a, I've converted to disc brakes in my car, and like my car puts out about a hundred horsepower now, you know, at the wheels. So, whereas before the rest, before the engine rebuild, it was at about thirty nine horsepower at the wheels. So it's uh, it goes, but you know, there's that certain joy for me of uh, the seat of the pants, big steering wheel you know, the windscreen being that far from your face and the excitement of I am absolutely going at nine tenths, ten tenths here. Oh, look, it's only 57 miles an hour. Yeah. You know, whereas, oh, it's you know, to me, I really enjoy that aspect of it, which I'm sure for you is a, a lot of the joy of driving or flying old aircraft too compared to modern aircraft, which gives a similar sort of reward. Yeah, it's the, it's the buzz. It's just sort of the wind in your hair type um, noise and smell of oil and everything else. And that and that's you know always been the fun. You can see it, there's a couple of propellers or one propeller behind me. The other one um, I've got downstairs is from an old gypsy mosh that I crashed. But so um, that's a, that's a, that's another story. But that that the open biplane flying is the ultimate for me. It's just it's totally religious. You're in the air when this sort of flying over the you know coastline in an old biplane or something is just yeah, is wonderful experience. No, so I'm always surprised. But... Oh, sorry, go on, Ashmal. Yeah. No, I was gonna say that for me is so when we're talking about driving an older car and you know you work around a lot of things and, and Giles, you said there's always an expectation something might go wrong, but you have to, you know, that's an expectation. And and for mine, I had uh, an accelerator cable break. And I was driving with a, a string attached to the carburetors and I was accelerating with my hand over my shoulder. And it's the weirdest thing trying to do that while you're driving. But when, when you're in an airplane, and, and I always say to people, you know, it's it's always the the smell, the the feeling of acceleration without actually going very fast. And and it's the slight sense of danger because I my 912 is left-hand drive, no seat belts, dog leg first. You have to do so much thinking while you're driving. It's not, you can't just do it like a modern car where you're doing it almost on autopilot. But then, and I want to explore a bit more about your aeronautical history. And I know your father was an aeronautical engineer, um, but that must be so different. I mean, that you can't have that expectation in an aeroplane that something's going to go wrong. Yeah, it, it definitely, the ramifications are generally a bit bigger in a plane. Um, uh, but the the adrenaline is huge, oh. and but flying those old things and just trying to get a gypsy moth started is is an issue in it. So if it's slightly cold, you are yeah. How you prime it and how you turn it and how you suck the fuel in and then you have to hand start it is just a such a palaver. But once it's going and it's chugging away and you t you lift off it. You know, 35 miles an hour or something, you lift off the wheels and you sort of float into the sky. It's, it is this most amazing feeling. And and just landing in farmers' fields and getting out and going for a walk and jumping back in, you know, all that stuff. And, you know, I always had a dream as a kid becoming a bush pilot in, America, in, in Australia and, you know, flying doctor or something. So that just, to me, totally appealed. Um, so I, I trained with the RAF at uni and then... But my father restored old Spitfires and stuff. So we did a lot of flying as a family and air display flying and, and Harvard flying. And um, so that was really what we're about. Um, after my father's death, um, Nick and I carried on flying, um, uh, doing a lot of it. And um, we've still got several planes. And then I had a bad plane crash in a, a gypsy moth when the engine stopped on me. And it was it was very unfortunate. I was in a tight turn and it went into a spin. I was very low. I was only 800 feet. I got out of it, but there was a lake and trees and a country house. And I just did a very heavy landing. I had my godson in the plane um, and um, I broke my back in three places Oof. and broke my nose and my ankles and knees and... And the best, the best sound I ever heard was hearing my godson crying in front of me because I knew that he was alive. And and took an hour and a half and cut out the planes, and then we got shipped off by air ambulance. So that whole experience 
Um, I would have jumped straight back in the plane again. But I met my wife three months before my dad died. Then she lived through my plane crash. And she got a massive issue about me flying. And and I sort of under, I understand that. And um, so um, I gave up flying really for her. And, and it's flying is quite a selfish thing. And the, the fun part of flying for me was not getting in a modern plane. It's flying old stuff and fast stuff and you know that and air displays that was the fun part for me and and i realized actually if i was just going to find modern stuff it wasn't going to do it so i gave up but nick we we bought an old number of years ago an old radial engine french 1950s aircraft called the broussard which is a bit like a a, a beaver if anyone knows it and pratt and whitney engine and We've still got that, and then the, the plane my father built. But it's um, yeah, flying is it, it is a wonderful thing. It really is. It's amazing because your your passions kind of passed down from your father. So if you think about music, you know the aeronautical theme, cars, watches, um, and it's it, I mean, I'm I'm incredibly jealous because I feel like you're living your dream, you know, living your best life, doing all of these things. It's amazing. Um, but then to be able to make it, you know, the whole thing about, you know, if you do what you love, you never work a day if, in your, in your yeah. life. It's And for me, that's that's the dream to be able to go to work every day, doing this thing, creating something that's so the pinnacle of engineering, I guess. It, it, of course it is, because it's so, you know, the tolerances that you've talked about already to be able to say we created this and then. I mean, just the profile of what you're doing, because you said you you do some work with the military. Do you still do some yeah, work with the military about, at the moment? Yeah, yes. About twenty five percent of our business is just making for military around the world, and and you we meet some meet some amazing people. Um, yeah, if you think about the military, they can't wear smartwatches because they can be hacked. So, yeah. um, and if you're flying F eighteen. For seven years of your life, you want to celebrate that, and you know, wearing your F eighteen watch that you've had and you use and you give to your son, who gives to your grandson, they become massive family heirlooms. These watches, um, and really for Nick and I itself, it's the most fascinating. And we do a lot of Australian military um, special forces to um, a lot of American military projects, um, and you, we do meet some very interesting people. Um, and and it's part of the business which has always been you know I th I think this well, Nick and I would be really bad at selling stuff we don't believe in and don't understand um, and if we were in the sort of the the bl blingy watch world and trying to create something in that space it just wouldn't ever be what we're about so so really I think in in life and I think in building a brand which we've done all we've done is do something that we generally love. And you hope there's enough people out there who will love what you're doing. We haven't tried to be a bit of everything. We haven't tried to um, really make people love us. We realize that people out there will not like what we're doing. And we've put our hand up saying, I don't care, really. As long as there's enough people who do like what you're doing. And I think in brand building, it's very easy to become very beige and because you're trying to make everyone like you and and in life no one you know not everyone will like you and you just have to under respect that very quickly and we've got another rule in our business it's it's called the three times rule and that is everything we do always takes three times longer always costs three times more and is three times more effort and it's a bit like doing up a car or something and and most people give up when they get to one and a half or maybe two, but never reach the three. So they can, they'll never make it because you've just given up too early. And it's, you know, it, it, it just takes a lot more out of you than you ever will do. And I think we learned that in early days of what we're trying to do when we'd mortgaged our houses to, to, to cry and grow this business. Um, and, um, we got through it, but in hindsight, it's just because we did that three times rule. I see. It feels kind of organic because, you know, there's, I don't see, I mean, I know you know, to grow the business, you've, you've, you've taken massive risks, but obviously you've believed in what you're doing, but I don't see it 
you know, I don't see tons of your advertising in magazines and things like that, but, and I was aware of the brand, but then when, did I, did I see that you're, I mean, on the, on, on the military and, and secret service theme, did I see your watches in the Kingsman movie? Yes. Yeah. In the original Kingsman, we were, we, we had this, um, call from our guy in our store and said, Claudia Schiffer is in the store with a man. And uh, this is years ago. And, and uh, we said, well, that man is probably her husband, Matthew Vaughan. And uh, Matthew Vaughan was in our store. And he said, look, I, I'm doing this. You know, and you know, I'm, can I talk to someone from the management? And so Nick spoke to him. He said, look, I'm, I'm doing this movie about Secret Service sort of angle to it. I have a mate in the army and he says, there's only one brand you should talk to, to, to put your watches in the film. So we um, spoke to him and he told us the plot. We thought, actually, that's sounded quite a fun film. And, and more importantly, he didn't ask us for, for any money to do it. So um, we, we created those watches for him for the film, which was, which was great. But that's, that's, a lot of that is luck. A lot of it is, you you have the opening. Do you make the most of it, and do you rush around and create those watches quickly and not piss them off and all that stuff? Um, and uh, yeah, that's, that was quite quite a fun break for us in those early days. I saw you, I saw you were at Henley uh, Henley Regatta with Mark Strong. He's yeah, still Mark the watches. He's a top guy, Mark. Really, really nice man. Very good actor, um, but just a just a generally lovely man and. I think the yeah, as well as the three times where we got this, we just do not want to work with any tossers in life either. That's the thing is, <laughs> you just want to it's work a good with nice. It's a really good role for anyone, and I know a lot of people have that role. But um, life is not worth it working with difficult people, and and a lot of slabs out there are quite difficult. So um, yeah, we we stick to the nice ones. If I could just uh, contribute there for a second, Giles. I was I spent some time in the Australian military, oh, and did you? yes, and like I my time concluded at about ninety four, I think ninety three, I think I got out. Yeah, nineteen ninety three, and it was to my much disappointment that my Doxa watch I got issued when I started back then, I had to hand in on on leaving. They were happy for me to keep my branding nine mil pistols. However, though, I had to hand back my dog's watch, which I was quite, I'll tell you, I was, I was disappointed because I have quite petite wrists and they had two sizes and it was a watch that fitted me, which is very rare when you've got little wrists like I do, you know, so it was quite, um, yeah, I was, and what really frustrated me about having to give it back is it actually had my service number engraved on the back as well, you know, when it was issued to me. So it's not like they're going to give it to someone else. No, and they would have just chucked it away, wouldn't they? Yeah, I reckon it went in the bin. I bet you went to landfill. I bet you anything went yeah. landfill. What a shame. You should yeah, have done the old, oh, damn, I lost it last night. Where yeah, is I it? Think, I reckon they've heard that before. I think they probably have, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you're talking about the heirlooms and military people handing down their watches. From my experience, that must be a more modern thing or a really old thing. I must have been in that sweet spot of... Uh, we have to account for everything, you know what I mean? So anyway. And, was... and I think in 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 that day as well, this sort of the quartz revolution had taken over. Um the the love of mechanical had slightly disappeared, hadn't it? Um but I mean you've got the sort of you know the, the special forces, Rolexes and that are you know massive collectors pieces from those those days. But I think um yeah by and all a lot of the watches um were were not particularly good watches at that stage or or, or something quite basic yeah um, look, it was incredibly basic look, it didn't it, all, it was literally a basic you know 24 hour watch you know with it didn't even have date on it you know but it was a mechanical winder that it was mechanical That's yeah and it had and, and it had a it had a silenced uh, movement too for you know operations in the, you know in the dark type thing and for noise management but yeah look to think back on it I really would have liked to have kept that watch. What a shame. Yeah. What anyway, shame. look, I've, I've got uh, I've got memories better and worse than my watch 
from that time of my life. <laughs> <laughs> Good way of looking at it. I think I think we can all look back on regrets of not buying something or selling it or oh, um, well, yeah. we're not even starting that conversation, my friend. I can tell you right yeah. now. <laughs> we, we could be there all day, couldn't we? I'll, I'll tell you we we'll talk about aircraft before to go back on that point. I'm fascinated by them. Never been a pilot, been in plenty of aircraft, loads of um, you know, fixed wing and rotary aircraft. My next door neighbor here, John, he's an ex-naval pilot. He's in his late 80s now, you know, and um, so I'm always exposed to it through his conversations and that. And I'm always really surprised at how cheap old aircraft are. You know, when you talk about your gypsy moths and your tiger moths and that type of thing, when you think about how long they've been maintained to still be functioning and flying, I reckon they're, I reckon they're a bargain. Like if you bought a classic car that was still functioning in the condition that these aircraft have to be, it'd be 10 times the price of what the aircraft are. I couldn't agree with you more. And if you think of a Spitfire, you know, or, or Gypsy Moth that I had, the 20 flying in the world, and it was a, under 100 grand. And you think how many cars are out there or Spitfires that go ridiculous really cheaply with battle history and flying in comparison to the Ferraris out there. Yeah. And, and and the main reason is because anyone can go and jump in a Ferrari and drive it, but not anyone can jump in a Spitfire and fly it. And, and that is ultimately the reason why um, there is. An, and, um, uh, but it is sad and the cost so, so when when Nick and I were running this aviation business, restoring these old aircraft, I remember we were restoring Spitfire at the time, and we're charging twenty eight pounds fifty an hour for maintenance on this. This, and we needed serviced engineers, we needed chief engineers, the paperwork, everything. And I had a dodgy old family Volvo at the time, and I went to the local garage to go and get it serviced. And this young kid plugged in a computer and did it. And he was charging 70 pounds an hour. And I looked at it and I looked at Nick and said, we've got to get out of this business. We're never going to make money out of it. Yeah. And let's it, make watches. They'll pay more. Yeah, let's just, sort of, this is ridiculous. Um, and uh, it's it's true. And, and then you'd have a Spitfire. There would be a part that Spitfire. You're not allowed to make it because it needs to come from a um, the, the, the original source. So you then spend six months finding that component, searching anything from eBay to people's private collections. So that Spitfire just sits in your workshop for six months where you're trying to find this part. I mean, it's just a sort of very, very difficult business to make money out of. Huh. Um, Excruciating. Uh, and it, but it always saddened me. Yeah, it should be worth a lot more. Classic. Um, well, look, we've been going on for well over an hour now. The... Ajmal, have you got any closing remarks you'd like to um, contribute? I've got a million more questions to ask Charles. Maybe we'll see if we can trick Charles into coming back another time and we'll continue on. Oh, oh, come and do a podcast from the wing. More than happy to show you around. Let's do it. I'll have to zoom oh, in, obviously, because the commute's just a little extreme for me. Well, when you, you do your... It. Yeah, your road trip. Come via UK and for America. By that time, it's going to need ramp access, okay? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just for us to get up in your wheelchairs. <laughs> <laughs> no, but really, really appreciate Next time. Um, but thank thank you very much for having me on. And, and no, it's always, always lovely to talk about watches, cars and planes and, and, and life, really. <laughs> Yeah, I reckon I reckon you have half a chance of sucking Ashmal into uh, launching him into a custom watch if you get him to your, to the wing, and I reckon that's why he's not going to go. <laughs> oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna come and visit in my nine twelve when I get it going, um, yes. which will be later this summer, and <laughs> it's just such a beautiful setting. I mean, the wing it's just the the theme, and when when I was there for the evening with with Porsche and Savills, I um and because I'd driven there. And, I, and Mark, I was in my 996, which Giles hasn't been washed for three years. Um, and I and I thought, I could just have a couple more drinks and I could leave it here. And then, but then I thought, but people might think it's just been dumped here and just get it towed away. They, they wouldn't, they would have thought, so it'd, be, they'd thought it'd be Nick's or mine. That's probably what they would have thought. And 
996, lovely cars though. But but yeah, as I mentioned before, anyone who's listening who wants to come for a tour of the wing, please reach out. You can book tours. It's um, £25 and all that goes straight to charity. And But we, we love showing people around. So appreciate that. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much I've for your time. To... Sorry, just really to add to that, what Giles saying, Giles saying about the book a tour, it's, it's a long tour because there's so much to see. There's so many questions to ask. There's always amazing items, memorabilia, you know, motorcycles, TT, Isle Man winning motorcycles or a, a Formula One car or something that you can just sit and marvel at for absolutely ages. And and when you see an 80s Formula One car, you you the longer you look at it, the more you see. I, I, I'd highly recommend getting down there for a look. Good. Great. Well, you're welcome. Thanks, guys. Ajmal, thank you very much for another podcast this week giles it has been a pleasure i'll definitely be popping in next time in the uk which realistically is probably going to be your next summer because we've got a european trip booked and it's not that far to duck over to actually ashmal and i've never met face to face so it'll be a good opportunity to do so about time too you're welcome and thank you both really love chatting really appreciate it thanks everyone now uh listeners out there please think about following the podcast any comments please dm myself on market cars that's mark m-a-r-c-a-n-d-c-a-r-s and ajmal is black cat driver follow bremer watches on all the socials to see what cool cats are wearing on their wrists these days thanks everyone thank you bye